0: Open your Bibles, if you would, two, and I'm going to go relatively, relatively uh, intentionally. We've already had a good morning. I want to start with a testimony. Uh, open your Bibles to. Uh, we're going to start in um, in Genesis briefly, but before that, I want to share a testimony. We 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 had this uh, wonderful British couple named John and Anna White that were here this fall. Um, some of you met them in France. They are from the UK. Their um, parents run the ministry in France that we, that we went to this, uh, this summer, that we plan to go back to this summer. You're all invited. We, we keep in great touch with them. And uh, we we're aware that John and Anna have been going through kind of a, an intense season of life on many, on many levels. Uh, I won't get into the specifics. But the reality is, is they've been contending for some things. They've been going through um, a difficult extended season. And in that, um, I, I want to share a testimony that they sent this weekend. Today, I want to talk about facing difficulty. We've been in a series on culture, and we're still laying a foundation on that. I think I have a slide that shows some of the other kind of controversial topics that we plan to get into in the, in the coming weeks. I don't think we'll probably get into all these topics all at once, because I might die. I would say that most of these topics, I'll probably spend two to three to four times more time studying for those than, than a typical week. And, and so I want to do it in a way that we are in a very uh, assured that what is coming out of uh, the pulpit is one that we can fully say with confidence that we have met with the Lord and are speaking um, towards. So that doesn't, that doesn't promise perfection by any means. It just says that to, to do like a whatever that would be, if we did all of these in, in order nine, ten weeks in a row, that would be quite a pace. So what we're probably going to do is break things into some, some chunks. And what we're doing right now is kind of laying a foundation of awareness of how culture forms us. And what we're going to get into then in, in coming weeks is some of these controversial issues of culture that the church needs to have a voice in, and perhaps it's not the same voice or the same tone that we've been accustomed to. I want to say that as I get into the concept of facing difficulty in light of a culture uh, that is pulling us in an opposite direction from our Creator. And this is the, the, the testimony John and Anna sent us um, this week. I also want to just preface this. It's, they, they mentioned a bit of just some kind of demonic attack. We never give focus to the, to the demonic, to demons, to Satan, to Lucifer, to darkness. Why? why do we not get focused there? Well, because what we find is that by and large, the focus is supposed to be on on our king and on his face. And and when you worship and when his presence comes, all inferior presences just don't really find a place of existence or influence. I, I find it hard to believe that Moses could worry about the problems of the people when he met the father face to face. And, and it is a tragedy when people in a superior covenant live with an inferior blessing. And I, I want us to be a people that we do not shy away from acknowledging the work of darkness, but the way we confront darkness is through refocusing ourselves on light. So that's essentially the story and testimony I'm going to share with you. Um, Anna texted me, they, they gave permission to share this thing, and they said, I had a crazy thing last night where we, we named together in the midst of the context being they've had some difficulty with many things, um, and we named some things together of these strongholds that we feel have been up against uh, us, and then suddenly John started getting his, this pain in his neck like he was being strangled. Now, the, the, the context there wasn't like, oh, we're, we're, we're praying and naming some things, and it was like, oh, my, my neck kind of hurts. They thought he was having a stroke, a 30-year-old man having a stroke. That's how intense the pain was. Uh, nothing like that's ever happened to us before. And I thought he was, was having a stroke or something because of how much pain he was in. But he, we, we took authority and took communion. When you take communion, what do you do? You remember, you shift your focus onto something. And we worshiped for over an hour. And the pain went from 100% down to 10%. Just realizing what we are up against here, um, both in this part of England and in general. Um, was, was very intense, but we, we so appreciate the prayer covering. John specifically said, I knew it was to do with my voice when I was being, feeling the stranglehold. So what I, went over, what I did as I began worshiping, he went over to the piano and began worshiping after communion. And even with Anna going to bed, he knew it hadn't quite released. And the pain was still there, but it almost completely subsided as he sang. Then, the next morning, we get an update. Anna Anna shares, crazy update. We got a message this morning from friends of ours who run a retreat center in Wales called Breathe. Their names are Phil and and Marianne. And my parents happened to be with them for a day, praying through some things. And last night at 1130, exactly the same time that John was feeling strangled, they were praying and breaking off things from my family bloodline. And uh, Marie Ann felt that a specific kind of gagging assignment was on John and needed praying off and declaring void. So she did that, and that's exactly when John felt that sensation. It lasted around an hour, she said, and then that feeling to pray into it left, which was exactly the time period that they were worshiping. So they felt specifically that this was an a assignment of darkness lifting off as Marie Ann prayed with, alongside their parents. And she specifically said that it was over John's creative voice, which they thought was so crazy and they're so in awe of God. And just feeling the presence and alignment of how God is rallying people simultaneously in the midst of a, of a pursued breakthrough. They couldn't have been more aware of God's presence, thankful for his goodness, and in awe of what he was saying and doing. Thank you for your prayers, appreciate it, and just sending so much love. So one thing I want to point out just from that testimony is that this this isn't just praying a momentary difficulty. While there was pain in a moment, they're praying into something, almost like stirring the pot of something that was going on for, for months, if not years, of breakthrough in the struggle with his creative voice. And then in a moment, in an hour, there's this kind of battle, an intense battle. And what I, what I think was so profound was they did a couple things. They rallied other people around them. The Lord was rallying other people around them. And they were compelled to worship. And uh, I, I just feel like if, those are, if there's someone in the room, or maybe a number of you, that just feel like there's, there's something that's being strangled in your life, Maybe it's your voice. Maybe it's creative unctions. Maybe it's getting a vision for your, your business or your family or career or schooling or whatever it is. Why don't you just receive this prayer? And let's, let's lay hands, um, if you feel comfortable, the people next to you on your shoulders, uh, or you can just lay hands on your own self. We just receive that testimony, Father. We receive the testimony of what you're doing in the earth. That in the face of difficulty, in the face of the assignments of darkness, we take our attention off the darkness and onto the light. I just, I just see a picture of communion right now. I wish we had it. We could take it together. I encourage you all to go and take communion. If this is your, if this is your heart's cry and this resonates today, immediately go home and take communion with the Lord. Remember. And we declare that we have voices. We have destinies of light, where darkness has no authority, and that the light trumps in size, weight, in goodness, anything trying to stranglehold, the purposes, the songs, the creativity, the life, the voice of our people, this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. It's a good start. Well, transitioning now into to some scripture. Why do we give testimonies? Well, biblically it's because I think Jesus' example in John 6. What happens in John 6 is that John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus, who was the prophet that called out, This is the Messiah. He's now rotting in prison, and and he sends his disciples to Jesus and Jesus' disciples to say, um, are you it, or are we looking for somebody else? Because I don't know if you noticed, I'm riding here in prison, and you're supposed to be the Messiah to set captives free. And I'm in prison, and I'm the only guy that knew who you were. And Jesus then responds to, his, to John's disciples, and he says, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The lame walk, the blind see. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed, are he. Blessed is he who is not offended at me. What is he essentially saying? He's saying you're focused on what God is not saying and what God is not doing and the difficulty of your current circumstances, John. I would suggest you focus on what he is doing because he's doing a whole lot. People are getting healed. People are getting set free. The Lord is doing work. And when you sit there and look at your own circumstances and your current difficulty... You completely sever yourself from the work of the Lord into the earth. The underlying response is also, perhaps, I don't have an answer for you, John. By the way, John stayed in prison. and His head was chopped off. There wasn't a breakthrough for John's immediate circumstances. And that was in the context of the Savior of humanity. Sobering. It's sobering. You have to have an eternal perspective in order to face some difficulties. And yet what Jesus' command was, was not anytime you're in prison, you're probably going to die, so just accept your fate. I think the early church in the Gospels and into Acts specifically talk about people breaking out of prison, like Paul, like Peter, through angelic visitations, because if they didn't, the people would probably say, Yeah, when you get in prison, you're probably just gonna have your head chopped off and die and rot there. That wasn't the message. The message was, He uses all things for good, gain a divine perspective, He's always doing something, He'll do something through you. And at the same time, it's yes, we live in a world of conflict, and ultimately, when you find yourself in a posture, in a prison, in a difficult circumstance, there's resources, and he has no problem busting you out of it. I love the fact that Paul just hung out a little while longer until he got everyone saved in the jail cells, because he wasn't worried. He wasn't in survival mode. It's all about a perspective swap and when we don't have the perspective of heaven, we can't see what heaven is doing. And Jesus was super focused on having them focus in on what the Lord was doing. And so, potentially, those of us today, we need to take the posture of facing difficulty with fresh eyes, fresh posture, and a fresh focus. I remember when I was in, uh, in school, I went to a Christian school from third grade to, to 12th grade. And uh, we would always have prayer at the beginning of the day. That did used to happen in public schools, I understand. But um, we had prayer every day, and I wasn't trying to be mean or, or uh, that sounded kind of sarcastic. I wasn't being sarcastic there. Sorry. Uh, the the what well, I'm actually going to kind of bash the prayers at my at my Christian school is what I'm going to do. So so, what we did every morning was class. Anyone have any prayer requests or praise reports? And we would do this thing where, where a, f- a few kids would go like, pray for my dad, he's traveling. Or, we have a fun vacation this weekend. That's a praise, Mrs. Brown. Or, or like, ah, I've got a cold, pray for me. Uh, or whatever it is. It, usually it was super kind of lighthearted for the heavy stuff, and it was lighthearted for the fun stuff. Um, neither of which we ever reported anything of God doing something that was undeniable. Like, n- n- Rarely did a kid walk in going like, praise report, dad's cancer got healed, or praise report, you know, my parents' marriage got restored, or anything of that nature. Um, it, was, it was usually very lighthearted, and the generic thing was, it's good to pray. And that's fine, and I'd rather we pray than don't pray. But what I love about what it taught me was, was ultimately I, I, I saw a couple things. The need was always great. From, from an 8-year-old to an 18-year-old to a, now a 38-year-old or whatever you are, there's always a long list of things and needs. If you knew that the God of the universe was listening to your prayers, not many of us would be done in 30 seconds. At the same time, if you, if you just listed the things that you are praying for versus the things that you're praying from, meaning the thank yous, the testimonies. That list should be just as long, or at least I, I encourage you to start finding things that he's doing to put on that list. Why? Momentum. Why? Declaration. Why? Shifts your focus. And so I like the fact that we as little kids were still giving thanks and praises, but what I wish is that we really dug in to saying, what is God really doing, kids, that you can give him thanks for? Because what you give him thanks for in your testimonies has an almost 100% correlation to what you actually believe about God. Your thank yous testify to what you believe about what God is really like. When you wake up in the morning, what are you able to give thanks for? if it doesn't immediately come to you, sit on it until you find something. Sit on it till you find something. And then prophesy more. Sit on it till you find His testimonies. Until they become your testimonies. Okay, before I start getting messy... Go to Genesis, um, and we we briefly talked about the story of. Actually, no, we're going to go to. Sorry, keep your hand in Genesis if you're there. If you actually have a Bible and you're not on your phones, like there's more than two of you, it's okay. I'm not offended. We're going to go to the narrow path in uh, in Matthew, Matthew seven. <clears throat> And before I do that, I want, I want to say, this is like my third introduction, that, that we have ultimately an invitation. That's my message today. We have an invitation. Our, our life is an invitation, and our mission is an invitation. The reason why we're inviting people to feast, the reason why we do communion is that there's a table where you're invited. Christians are invited continually to partake from the table. Those far from God are invited To a banqueting feast. And the reason is because then the lifestyle of what we do, our mission, our vision, and our proclamation becomes threefold. It's we're inviting you to connect, to connect with him. That is how we anchor on the presence of God, is that the invitation we give each of us and the entire rest of society is that you're invited to connect with the living God around his presence. The second is that we're inviting you, this city and the nations, to be formed by him. Formation is an absolute critical junction of the Christian life. And then finally, the, the, the third level of invitation is to join in. Most of the, the issues of the Christian life in the church would be solved, at least critically shifted in the right direction if believers would actually believe what they've been given and start to join in with the work of renewal of all of creation. You're invited to join in. And so we have a really good, good message in light of a society that's, that's faltering in many ways. And that is that the system is failing. We've been talking about systems. And I'm not going to go into them in detail but everyone can agree. I I, uh, where's, I saw Ken earlier. Hi, Ken. Where are you? You weren't in class on Tuesday. You were you were kind of overseeing other things over at Ekbalo um, House of Prayer. Uh, these kids this year in particular, I'm really enjoying. Um, I go every other Friday or so and teach them on biblical interpretation. It's been fascinating. Most of them are either like millennial or whatever comes after millennials, and. Uh, while, while they have a low IQ on certain things, it's amazing the awareness they have on other elements of culture. And so when I, when I start talking to them about the fact that, like, the different systems at bay, they're, they're all kind of tracking with me, and I say, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that everybody, no matter what, what you believe about the system, everyone agrees that the system is jacked up and we can't trust the system. And so whether you're on the left or the right of politics... Or, or whether you don't care, there's just this lack of trusting whatever the system is, and we don't even know how to define it. It's just that we all agree that there is a system going on, and it can't be trusted. It's not out for you. It's out to draw something from you. And so when you understand that there's a system, um, it's good news when you find out that that system is failing. I talked a little bit about how the tide comes back and forth in the ways of the kingdom. And so perhaps... While we are all kind of getting nervous about how the system is failing, we should be getting excited as the church. Because if you haven't noticed, people are starting to ask questions because they're seeing things failing. And when they're seeing things failing, there's an opening in spirit and in heart where people want to maybe observe what other options are there out there for them. And I want us as a people to start to get excited about the opportunity. The system is failing, and that is an opportunity. Secondly, we're still being formed by the system, you and I, and we need awareness of that system, how it's forming us and shaping us. Not to ignore it, but so that we aren't first and foremost shaped by that system, but by his system, to be too cliche. So the narrow path in Matthew 7. Um, I didn't do a full teaching on this last week. Um, I appreciate how how uh, some of you text me questions about my messages. It's good. It's got open communication. If you haven't noticed, I leave my cell phone up on my email. I don't know how many more months or years that will happen, but for the time being, you all have access. <laughs> and the, one of the questions was this. I liked if. We talked about the narrow path a little bit, and the question was, if we're supposed to walk on a narrow path, if we're supposed to walk on a narrow path, how do we remain creative? Is this in some kind of application of Jesus in his teaching? How do we remain creative in the, in the narrow path? All right, so go to Matthew 7. We're actually going to read, read this a little bit. Matthew 7, verse 7. I'm going to read the context um, leading up to the narrow gate and the narrow path. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Stop. Okay, so context. When we get to this concept of a narrow gate. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be open. The whole concept is you have a father that wants to open the door. Just ask. He's good. It's good news. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So is there resistance coming from an angry, hostile, scary dad? No. He wants to open it. Verse 9, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The whole concept prepping this little gate is that you have an amazing Father that's way better than you evil people that still give good gifts to your kids. That's the context. Then he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. So he reminds them about what is the core element of all teaching of the Holy Scriptures. It surrounded this reality, the kindness, to do to them what you'd have them do to you. And verse 13 then says, enter by the narrow gate. I like the phrase, enter by the narrow gate, because it assumes that you have A posture where you're standing there, staring at gates. Like it's not hard to find the gate. I'm just telling you which one to knock on so that I can open it. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So I asked those kids in the class, I ask them, so kids, what's, this, what's been the teaching over, over your life on this passage, and what's the, like the vibe you get? So I felt like vibe was like a good, trendy word. And they say essentially, well, the, the vibe is that, you know, only a few get to go, and it's going to be difficult. And you know what? Both those things are there, aren't they? And if you're like me, that's really how I understood it, too. It's only if you get in, and it's going to suck. <laughs> and that can summarize a lot, of the, a lot of the teaching of the church for a whole lot of generations, can it? And, and here's the thing, is that these they're coming from biblical words. But again, if we start with the whole context is a father who is... Desperately trying to show you how easy it is for you to just knock. But there is a specific gate to knock on. It's narrow in the sense of focused and specific. Not narrow in the sense of exclusive, like not for you, not for you, not for you, only for you. I I remember this summer in France, that picture, I think I've I've shared it once, where we were talking about the concept of freedom and the tension between freedom and discipline. And he showed this little video of all these beautiful New Zealand hobbit sheep going into like the shire, and and they were going through this little gate towards probably a cute little hobbit. It's all I think about in New Zealand, hobbits and green pastures. And so these sheep were, were were going through this little gate. They were all getting crammed up in a line, and all fluffy like a big cotton ball. And then as soon as they got through the gate, gate to the next field, it was like psh, 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 psh. like sheep bullets going everywhere. And they they were just frolicking through the wide open green pasture of freedom. They could only get there through a specific focused point of entry. It's a specific gate to a spacious place. Remember that for the rest of your life. That narrow gate is a specific gate to a spacious place. True freedom is only found when you access it in the context of meaning. There are three tanks of need, freedom, meaning, community. And the Lord continually disciples us into understanding that true freedom is accessed in a community of meaning where you focus, you you discipline yourself into a mode that doesn't limit you, it focuses you. Anything you give up in that process gets pulled back to you. There's rewards, there's benefits. And so the whole concept shifts as soon as you realize that we're not out to take your freedom because the system that's giving us endless freedom is not working. And people are, therefore, in a mindset of freaking out. I, I need to go back and figure this, my stuff out. And they're doing it with a subversive system and a subversive gospel. And we'll get to that in a second again. All right. So that narrow path. Are we good on the narrow gate? In the narrow path. That's the narrow path. And so, with that, uh, I want us to go to back to Genesis and remember Babel. And then to remember this. Jesus had, had a life of difficulty. But his life did not suck. I, I asked those kids, um, if you tell someone, hey... Only if you are going to come, and it's going to really be terrible. It's going to be really difficult. That's not a real exciting invitation. But we've changed the gospel and the Jesus story to be, if you think for a moment, we've redefined what difficulty is to, to life-sucking. So I actually did this on the board. I don't know how, like, politically correct or right it was, but I put, like, life sucks right there, and I put, what was the other side? Difficulty. All right? So just put that in your mind's eye. Difficulty, life-sucking. And so what I did was I just said, what are all the things that Jesus went through that were difficult? And they go, well, yeah, king tried to kill him as a baby. His parents forgot about him and went home. He, he had to go in the desert for 40 days. Uh, one of his disciples betrayed him and then hung himself. Uh, they tried to stone him in his hometown. They, uh, they eventually killed him. That was a rough week. Right. So and then and then the other side, and I go, yeah, those are all moments, 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 moments. And then in between those moments was the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus was. Think about the things his mother stewarded for him and spoke over him as a child, as a baby. That he grew up with a cousin that leapt in the womb. That when he got baptized something that could only be described like a dove, descends on him, speaks life, purpose, and promise over him. That when he has a rough 40 days in the desert, angels actually come and rejuvenate him and replenish him. To the fact that he then steps right into his ministry, goes right to the temple, opens up a scroll, and declares his identity and his assignment. He sees... People that have been exiled to the edge of town with leprosy, brought back in and restored the community because of a touch of the hand. He sees lame people that have been sitting at a well for their lifetime, raised up, brought back into the community. He sees blind eyes healed. He's restoring souls. He sees men that could do nothing but fish, transform the course of human history where no other rabbi wanted to give them the time of day. He had a pretty amazing life. And he's still living, and he's still living well. And the invitation is life, and an amazing life, a beautiful life, but difficulty. Do you, do you realize that Jesus tells his disciple, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Then they come back and they're saying, Jesus, even the demons, they, they, they obey, it's amazing. And then they start arguing about all the fun they're having in this amazing life that they're living. Because demons are obeying, things are being healed, and they are feeling pretty amazing about themselves. And, and he rejoices, actually. He had a great day. It, it literally says that Jesus danced. <laughs> and then in the dancing, in the, we like to jump over the dancing and go right to the correction. But in the midst of dancing, he says, but make sure you realize that what you're really celebrating is that your lives and your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He never allows them to miss the anchor, to miss the main thing. And at the same time, he still celebrates with their limited adolescent celebration. He lets them be teenagers. He lets them be immature. And he uses it as a place to teach and a place to draw them into a deeper place. But he warns them there's going to be difficulty. And I think in certain ways he keeps them from certain types of difficulty because you realize that every single one of his disciples gives their life. Peter upside down. And they didn't even think twice about it. Why? Because they understood the good life, the beautiful life, and they understood facing difficulty with utter abandon. (laughs) And so that's what I want. I want us to kind of carry that constant tension between the good life, the true good life, the true freedom in Jesus, and an awareness that we were made for difficulty. You were born for this. Many of us are struggling of what to do with the difficult thing in front of us because we're not sure that it, like, we're, we're now shifting from a thing that difficult things are bad And then when difficult things happen, we we aren't really sure how to confront it. We just want the Lord to take it away. But maybe he's he's asking you to step into the storm with him. Are you avoiding the storm or are you pressing in? Are you pressing in by eliminating your help, eliminating the people around you? Are you going towards isolation, self-sufficiency, or are you pressing in towards community and presence? that's the babel narrative so in babel you've got these people that that are in a failing system and they think that they can reach god on their own they they literally build a a a tower to heaven and they are under the belief that they in their self-sufficiency are able to take care of their needs and they get dispersed and scattered among the earth The Pentecost story is the fullness of time of the biblical account and the biblical story. Where all of a sudden, instead of different people with different tongues being scattered, different people of different tongues are gathered and tongues of fire are on the disciples and those in the upper room in order to gather instead of scatter. They're bringing them in and over them, they're inviting them into a way. And all of a sudden, those who could see it in the spirit realize that the fullness of time is taking effect, that the stories of Babel and a curse and dispersion are being restored. And the lesson is this. In that disintegrated world divided by race, language, and agenda, constituted by conflict and war, selfish gain through power and coercion at the expense of others, that is the story of Babel. Then the story of Pentecost is God's answer to the problem and his great act of new creation. The lesson then becomes this the invitation to a kind of community, Babel's community, ignoring the Spirit's empowering invitation and relying on their own human will. That's the invitation of Babel, ignoring the Spirit's. Empowering presence and invitation. And then isolating yourself from others and individualizing the vision of heaven on earth. Ignoring isolation. That's, that's the invitation of Babel. The invitation of Pentecost is simply the polar opposite. Instead of ignorance, you've got awareness of the presence of God on your life as a temple of the living God. And this was meant to be lived out as burning ones in a community of people that continually gathered, sought the word, prayed, gave their possessions, and made everyone around them nervous. None dared join lightly. But the invitation is away from ignorance and away from isolation, and that is the same invitation that we have in our context, in our culture today. Okay, so the reality then, Babel compromises this thing of trust. They trust it in themselves. In God we trust, I believe, is this statement that we put on our money to remind the most capitalistic society of free market freedom that you've ever seen balanced out with a reminder on our money of what the key of keeping it all together really is. The key to the whole system is written on the temptation of the whole system. And what did we say in the garden? Adam and Eve compromised their ability to trust the Father and what he said over their reality. And in Pentecost, the people are invited back to trust this kind of father. And what we are continually doing is inviting each other back to trust in the face of a culture that is absolutely distrusting of every measure of authority that's before us today. And how does, how does that look? I mentioned briefly last week about the reality that there's, there is... There's a secular revival and a Christian revival happening simultaneously, and that that secular revival mimics the Christian revival and that Christian revival is is the story of we have creation and and then what does the secular society say? Well we have this inner self, and so they they when someone's m- struggling with what's going on inside, they constantly go back to, like, I need to reconnect with my inner self. I need to go out in nature. I need, I need to go uh, do something to reconnect with this thing that's been compromised by my environment and my family of origin. And then the fall, that our story is then there was the fall. Their story is then there's trauma in life. Trauma is something that happened to me. Any commitment or responsibility or authority that's obstructing my inner self, that's what, that's what the story looks like. Inner self, trauma. And then thirdly, we go creation, fall, sin. And you know, the, the world hates when Christians talk about sin. And it's not because they don't resonate with the message. It's they, they don't resonate with the right message. But here's how they've redefined sin. They've redefined sin as, as unhappiness, as anything that makes you feel bad, or anything difficult. If you define sin as anything difficult, it's really hard to get excited about a narrow path that's promised difficulty. And so what we are doing that's countercultural is we need to redefine the definitions of what is being compromised in society. Anything difficult is not sin. You and I know that, but I would suggest that perhaps we are slowly being influenced by a reality that says that maybe there is more truth to that. Because society is not, like, they're not trying to be evil and take away X, Y, and Z from you and from me. The awareness is that they know they've got this inner self, and they know that they've been traumatized by family of origin, and they, they, they they haven't gone through all the bloodline work that we've done in prayed this often, prayed that often. Yes, mom, I've prayed that prayer five times. Okay. You know, it's, they, they don't have some of those benefits and resources that we've prayed and that we've done and the work we've done. And they crave the same thing. And so what they're doing is that they're setting up safety barriers because they can't trust anything around them. And then they're, they're trying to go back and go, well, anything that's difficult, that's pulling me away, anything that brings up low self-esteem, unhappiness, displeasure, That's been redefined as this thing that you have to push away from, separate yourself from. And the problem is that then even happiness and pleasure have been redefined as the same thing. And happiness and pleasure are not the same thing. They're two different chemical balances in your system. I talked about that. I won't get into that right now. But the reality is is that pleasure, happiness, not the same. And when you define pleasure or you define that sin is anything that makes you feel bad and doesn't bring pleasure, and when you say, I just want to be happy, you have just then said, pleasure and happiness are equivalent, and I am in the pursuit of happiness. The reality is we are in the pursuit of peace, happiness, and there is joy on the other side of the cross. There's something even in our kingdom DNA that says, you know, the pursuit of happiness is innate in our being. The pursuit of pleasure is not. The pursuit of pleasure feasts on capitalism. And it lies to us that happiness and pleasure are the same thing. And then it redefines sin as anything that doesn't bring pleasure. And then we start to shy away from the things that don't bring us pleasure and anything that's difficult. And when we're shying away from anything difficult, we can't actually look at the gate into the spacious place of creative freedom and enter it. And so what the invitation is, is to call out the system, call out the awareness, and say, that stuff, that spirit that's pulling us away from difficulty, because difficulty is sinful, difficulty is bad. Perhaps we need to ease back in to the difficulty and saying, Father, where are you in this difficulty? Are you with me? Am I supposed to push through this gate? Who do I need with me? And potentially, that's the narrow gate that leads to your freedom, that leads to your spacious place. And that's the place that that your friends, your neighbors, and the city need to see, so that when they see a defined Christian life, they see freedom. And when they ask you how you got there, you show them this gorgeous little gate And any difficulty, any hardship that's on the veneer is a drop in the bucket to the place of freedom that you're inviting them into. And I think that's an invitation for all of us to remember every single day when we wake up and ask the Lord, what am I thankful for today? And it's an invitation for every single person in our lives that we have influence over. And then the application is this, and I'll close. And you may stand. And the ministry team, worship team can start to come up. I want to ask and close with this one key question What if difficulty is the key to your freedom? What if difficulty is the key to your freedom? I want to be sensitive to. There, there are those where it's like you may have been obsessing over certain things that are tough and you need to stop it, put it aside and just pursue the fullness of what Jesus has paid for and given you. But some of you are, are, are in a posture of when difficult things happen, you're like unsure of where my place to contend what it looks like. And the enemy's strangleholding you. And you want to flee because it's difficult. And perhaps you just need to worship. Shift your focus. The system doesn't work. Perhaps we trust him again. See if that system might be superior to the system that's not working. reconsider this invitation to a countercultural people that lean into difficulty and to a countercultural people that know how to trust someone and each other when no one else knows where they can put their trust. Washington Post, I'll close with this had an interesting article. It's actually a couple years old. I meant to highlight it, but this is what Robert Samuelson said. He said, this was two summers ago. Still in kind of the progression of the most historical tension we've had on this, perhaps in our lifetime. He says, this is the summer of our discontent. As Americans celebrate July 4th, they're mad at their leaders, mad at their government, and mad at each other. A recent pupil finds that public trust in government remains near historic lows. And then he goes on and says the the political polarization has soared. But it says it's not as bad as you think. Even talking politics, Democrats and Republicans don't hate each other as much as everyone says they do or thinks they do. Pinpointing responsibility for political polarization is sometimes the easiest thing to do. Ironically, the people who are most politically engaged, the people who consider themselves the most morally responsible, pose the greatest threat to the political system, weakening its ability to compromise and condemning it to paralysis. He's speaking of the power players, the politicians. But then he says, there's this messy middle there's this messy middle where the majority do not have uniformity of being either one side or the other. Most do not see a party as a threat to the nation. And more believe their representatives in government should meet halfway to resolve contentious disputes rather than hold out for more of what they want. Now, please put aside your political unctions for me to make this point. He closes with this. We'll have a whole talk on politics to come. By and large, Americans are optimists. We, are, we see ourselves as can-do people who generally believe the future will be better than the past. But the fact is that many Americans are having second thoughts about their society and the future is concerning. What's worrisome and not especially recognized is that many members of the political class, the pundits, the journalists, and the scholars, as well as elective officials and activists have a vested interest in our division They make money from it, they make careers from it. So who they're against defines who they are, both on the left and the right. And this is how he ends. Not surprisingly, the system has become self-perpetuating. It feeds on mutual recriminations. On this July 4th, the founders, who had deep disagreements but compromised, would doubtlessly disapprove. And I wanna invite us to the original founder of all creation and all humanity as we worship and as we close. Father, we give you our hearts that burn for you, that burn to be a people that demonstrate and show you that we've given you everything in a narrow gate because we know your promises, our freedom, spaciousness, identity, purposes, and dreams coming alive and that the world is craving for a failing system to take hold of your invitation. We're going to be officially done. So I invite you in the next few minutes to go get your kids. I know we had a longer ministry time earlier, and it's close to noon. But just take a moment as the worship team plays to make sure you know what your response is as you leave today and remember that you're invited and that you have an invitation that the world craves worship team lead us and we're officially done when you're ready to be done